Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulina and all these people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, Project Kazimierz listener, whatever time of the day you're listening. Today we've got a very interesting uh, guest on Project Kazimierz, Richard Millington. I came across Richard Millington when I was looking for expertise on online community management and community management in general, and I found that he'd written a book and he had a website, and I always think of Richard as being the go-to person when, when I think of people who really know about community management, but I never actually had the chance to speak to him until until today. So rather than me trying to introduce him when he's online now, Richard, could you imagine you've just met someone at a social engagement, a party or a networking meeting, whatever, who has no idea who you are and possibly doesn't know what community management or online community management is and um, how you'd answer the question, what do you do? <laughs> You know, I try to explain this to my parents at times, and I'm still not 100% sure that they know what I do. Um, what I do is help organizations build successful communities. So what my company does is try to distill all the psychology that's out there today, all the data that's out there today, all the case studies that are out there today of successful online communities, and use that as a template or blueprint of sorts to help organizations build more successful communities, to get more people active, to get more people participating, to get more people sharing information, to get more people helping one another. Whatever the value of that community is, we try to help organizations use the whole, the whole, um, the whole encompassing level of psychology to, um, to do that, to, to achieve whatever their the goals might be there. Okay, great. Um, so I, I once met a community manager for... SAP, the big German software company, and he was very upfront about the fact that SAP is not a sexy company. That when people think of cool companies, they think of Trello or or Facebook. No one thinks of SAP as being cool. And so I I am aware of the fact that community management can exist in big corporate land. But if someone said to you, well, I can imagine it's easy to do a online community for you know fans of oasis or some uh, oxfam or amnesty international but how on earth do you do community management for a company doing industrial lubricants or or insulation is uh, is community management feasible in all walks of life or are there are there some areas where you think well actually you know this isn't going to work you can't do community management for a b2b business selling chainsaws or whatever no, that's a great question. It comes up all the time. I think at the moment, far too many organizations are trying to build a community, especially an external community, a community for their customers. 
when they don't realize that what they sell, what they do, while it might be really good, it might be really important, is simply not something that people want to spend their spare time talking about. So if I sell washing machines, for, uh, for example, um, sure that you might have a question about washing machines, you might come and get that question answered, but you don't really want to spend your time, your spare time, talking about washing machines and comparing washing machines. And I mean, we've had a lot of situations where we've turned um, companies away um, or we've advised them not to build a community simply because it's not there. But having said that, most companies would benefit from deploying some aspects of community in how they manage their employees, in how they get em their employees to participate, in how, in how they get their employees to feel engaged, how to get their employees to share more information. So um, my wife, for example, works at an organization where people, the way that they share information is by email, which works at some level, but then again, you have lots of emails and people spend all their time responding to emails and digging out information, and all that time really adds up. But if you have a community, if you have one central place where the information lives and exists, where you can ask a question, and that's going to go out to a lot of people that know the answer, where you can make sure you're not duplicating the work of other people that you've been working with, especially in large organizations, then I think there's a huge opportunity there to save a lot of time and make the employees more effective. So no, not every organization should have an external community. But I think internally, if not a central place, but definitely employing some aspects of community building in how they manage their employees, because I think there's a huge opportunity there that's currently being ignored. And does that mean that you, for example, I mean, obviously I'm immediately thinking of things like intranets that you might, the companies, and obviously Yammer was quite a high high profile one that was very successful, but would you be like working with someone who deploys share, a SharePoint consultant to, because anyone can, who's got the budget can implement SharePoint, but as I know to my cost, uh, I, I was uh, not long ago running a company that had quite a big SharePoint investment, which absolutely nobody used, and it, um, we moved to an Atlassian product. I can't remember what it's called now, but um, having just having a concept of a community if the technical tools aren't in place um, don't work. So would you work alongside a, a consultant to implement an effective intranet, for example? Sometimes. I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between the technology and the community. The technology is really important to get right. I mean, if you can set up a um, SharePoint or Yammer, Slack, whatever, I mean, the technology is getting easier than what it used to be. It's getting um, important, and it's good to get that side right, and we can give advice on what we recommend that. But the real magic of the work that I feel that we try to do is get people to use it. Because like you were saying, what happens so often, and this must be in most of the cases that we work with, is where someone has invested a huge amount of time, a huge amount of money, and a huge amount of their energy and internal capital and goodwill to get this platform up and running, and then they announce it to, ev to everybody thinking if they know it exists and if they just appreciate how valuable this could be, they're going to use it. And almost without fail, they don't. And they don't because they don't understand how community works. They don't understand the principles of building a community. Where first, most people aren't going to do it because it's new. It feels like extra work they have to do. They're going to tell you that they don't have enough time to participate. Even if this tool could save them a lot of time, they're still going to tell you they don't have time because they don't understand it yet. And the danger is trying to get the whole company to use it at once. That's usually a mistake. But community building is different. Community building is where you start with a really small group of people that believe in what you're doing. And then you gradually add more people towards that. But to do that, you have to understand so much about the psychology behind how these things work. So why do the very first pe people, why, why, are, why are they going to join and participate? If it feels exclusive, if it gives them that sense of superiority, perhaps, if you understand what those motivations are, those 
that, that additional small, small, small group might participate. And then as you grow on, people might want to join because they don't want to be left behind. They might join because their competitors or people that their right their rivals within the organization might have already joined. So the motivations will change as the community grows and develops. But that's but most companies I don't feel understand this yet. They try to do this big launch, which we always advise against, and think that everyone's going to join it at once and it doesn't work like that. And this falls down to the very the very micro level. And if I'm talking to you right now and I'm trying to persuade you to use this tool. It's going to be very difficult if I don't know enough about you, if I don't have a relationship with you in the first place, if I don't understand what motivates you. So I might try and build that relationship first. I might try and find out more about what your goals are. I might not even try to persuade you in that first conversation that we have. But then later on, if there's a question that I feel your expertise might have the answer to, I might reach out to you and be like, hey, I know you're an expert in this. Can you answer this question? Because it would really help this person. And that's going to be far more in a far more impactful thing to do than saying, hey, can you join and participate in this community? Because once you've tested it once, you're more likely to use it again. So there's this whole set of psychology processes that you need in place from the very micro level to the very macro level to make sure that a community works and succeeds. And this works internally and externally as well. There are some communities that can have a huge launch and they are successful from day one. Maybe a company like um, Apple, when they, you know, if they were to launch a new community today, it would be an incredible success because they have millions of people that have questions about their about their um, their iPhones and their laptops. So people are going to go there and ask questions. Um, but for most types of communities, they don't have that. They don't have the mass. They don't have that initial starting start starting spring springboard to go from. So you need to change it a little bit. You need to understand more about how that community building works. Yes, yeah, there's a very interesting. One of the other people I interviewed for this podcast were the the hosts of a BBC show called um, Click. It's a radio show, and it's Gareth Mitchell, Gareth Mitchell, and Bill Thompson. And they found that a, a group of listeners had formed a group on Facebook, which was operating without them. So it was like a community-driven community. And when they finally found out about it, they said it was a bit like. Um, they said this in the podcast. It's a bit like coming home and finding there was a, a very good party going on into your own in, in your own house. Uh, and, and sometimes, and yet clearly, there was a hunger among the among the listeners. But that raises a question I wanted to ask about the definition of community, because there are certain very high profile celebrities. I'm thinking of Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk, the um, who of Wine Library and VaynerMedia, who has the the Gary V show and um, now the Gary V audio experience and. He's given excellent talk, and he's a keynote speaker, and I'm a great fan of his, but he describes his followers as the Vayner Nation, and there's this concept that maybe it's a community. Certainly, he has way more interaction with his fans than most people. He answers their tweets on his Twitter feed. He responds to questions on his Instagram feed, but it's more like a, it's more like a platform through which people can say, hey, guys, I'm here, because I, it's hard for me to imagine that people who post on his on his YouTube channel really have a relationship with each other as a result of that, although there might be a bulletin board or community notice board effect. Um, so that you know that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you do get forums where people definitely do interact. And have, have you got like a, a, de a definition of where the boundary is between a community and a notice board? Sure, but the, I define the boundary is between a community and an audience here. Okay. So an audience is people that would interact with Gary, Vay Gary Vay Vaynerchuk. They would ask questions and he would respond to them. And an audience is great. You can do amazing things with an audience. You can promote things and there's lots of value towards having a big audience. 
A community is a group of people that talk to each other. Or to be more specific, it's a group of people who have developed relationships around a strong common in interest that they have. So those parts are really important because you have to have relationships, which means you have to have a history of interactions with these people. Even not every single person, but you need to have a substantial amount of interaction with those people. Um, you need to have that strong common interest, something that unites you, that brings you together, so it's not just a random group of, um, pe of, a pe of a people that um, you're trying to reach out to. And the audience is usually specific as well, which means that they've gone through something together, that they have crossed some sort of boundary in terms of interest or credibility that makes them an accepted member of that group. Because the only people that are in any community are the, are the people that believe they are. Like, um, there's some people that believe that every brand has a community, whether they know it or not. I don't agree with that because that means that I'm in lots of uh, online communities that I, I don't know about. Um, I think the better definition is people that believe they are part of your community, that truly believe they are part of your community. So Gary, so, so Gary with uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, I think where I would draw the definition or the line is um, it's not people that he interacts with, it's when those people interact with, with each other, when mm -hmm. they ask questions of each other. If you look at people like uh, Tim Ferriss, Tim Sati, um, Seth Godin Seth Go Seth as well with tribes, um, what you tend to find is that the audience will also ask questions of each other, they'll get help from each other. They'll, they'll arrange meetups that they attend, you know, in London or in Krakow or wherever, like around the world. So that, to me, is more of a community than just interacting with an audience. Um, that's my definition, and I don't think every, everyone shares that. Um, I think community itself is a very utopian term, and everyone tries to associate what they're doing with that. Um, but I think it would make sense. It'd be useful to have a better working definition than what we have now. Okay, that's that's very useful because I. I... I think that, uh, but that begins to imply, but it doesn't have to be face to face because one of the things I want to ask about is the, the distinction between online and offline communities that I've got a lot of, well, a, quite a lot of thin experience about. I'm definitely not an expert, but I, I think there's a, you know, the, what I notice is the sort of blurred boundaries that I'm involved in. You know, TED and TEDx couldn't exist without the internet in the way that it does now, yet a consequence of this global online platform is. You know, TEDx meetups, we had one last night and we got our big conference in three weeks happening all over the world where people do meet face to face. And do you, when, when you're giving advice to your clients, do you, do, and they ask you, should we have face to face meetups? What, what do you say? We usually say, actually, it's not a question that comes up too often because the audience is so dispersed around the world that having a face to face meetup is difficult. And also for a lot of companies we work with, they start worrying about things like the legal li li uh, liability if someone yes. trips over go going, going down the stairs of one of the meetups. Um, but what I would advise is, yes, if you have the audience to make it work. So if you have um, an audience that is dispersed around, around the entire world, it's a big audience and you can set a day and encourage people to meet up and let them arrange it. I think that works. I think that's good. We do usually recommend they do it because... Offline meetups can be really, really good for the people that attend, but they can also be quite alienating from the people that can't make it. So if you have one group of people that meet in Krakow this, this week, and they're talking about it a lot in the community, that's everyone else that couldn't attend that event, that's suddenly feeling a bit left out. Um, so you have to be careful how you manage that. Um, I think offline meet, meetups are great. I think one in in-person interaction that you have with some with somebody is going to be so much more powerful than a hundred interactions you have with them online but the practicalities of organizing them the legalities of uh trying to host them um and making sure that it works for the entire community is more difficult 
But with a big enough size, or you know, having one big annual event a year can be amazing. I know Moz do a terrific job of that. Um, so I think there are opportunities there, but it's not something that I would recommend most organizations do. Um, and if they do do it, just make sure they have the mass to make it work. Yeah, there's a chef I'm, if you're interested, I'm going to introduce you to called Phil Klein, who's a TEDx organizer who mm. works for Microsoft some of the time. And he, for TED, he organized a global gathering online. And using Google Hangouts, and and it was uh, and it was quite. It wasn't that complicated, but I, it would be easy to get wrong because you know everyone's got different technical levels of ability, and so you wouldn't think it's that hard to click on an email link to join a Google, a Google Hangout. However, then it turns out someone's using a Mac and someone's using an old version of Windows XP, and you know there's half the people on the line. But it was. I think he said that. He, he, his budget was 3,000 euros or dollars and, you know, people coming in from all over the world through 24 hours and, you know, compared to the cost of, you know, me flying to, us meeting in London, it would, excluding the cost of our time, it wouldn't, it wasn't that much more once you consider all, all the different associated costs. So it's, uh, it, it, it might be that that's a sort of halfway, halfway house. But um, anyway, I, I, actually we've gone straight into the sort of, the detail of your expertise, and I want to come back to that, but maybe you could tell people a bit about your background, um, particularly your, your contact with entrepreneurship. Like, if you could say, like, in your childhood, in your family, your social network, your friends, <laughs> were, were, the people who, were the people who were encouraging you to set up your own business, and was it something you dreamed of, or did it, was it a sort of a random moment where you thought, why not, and it happened? It just, it, it is, our audience are usually interested in technology and entrepreneurship, or, or else they're rather peculiar people who don't have a life because <laughs> that's what we talk about so so um and I, actually i want to come back to community building among the audience who listen to this but but t- t- tell us a bit about your background and your relationship with entrepreneurship sure i'll try and do this shorter version of the story um so i got into the idea of, run- of running a business probably around the age of 10 maybe 11 or so i think around that age when i liked the idea of it i was playing like these video games, like theme park, theme hospital, always like these management style games. Um, and I always enjoyed them. And I don't know at what point it clicked with me, but there was always something that I really wanted to do. Um, so when I finished school, when I grew up in a very quiet, normal town, um, Crawley in the UK. Um, and I remember um, I got a job. Um, one of the first jobs I ever did was writing for a video gaming mag magazine in the UK. I was like 15 years old at the time. Um, it was a PC gamer magazine, I believe. Um, and this is by building an online community and being involved in online communities. And they, I began writing this world of esports um, section for them. And one of the things that happened is that the magazine began taking news from my website to print in their, in their magazine. And then they hired me simply to write that sexual thing. But then they began sending me to these esports events that were taking place like around the world. I mean, they're so much bigger now than what they used to be. So I was going to places like um, South Korea, Singapore, Sweden, um, USA, um, South Korea. Always, always like great places for different events like the World Cyber Games and all these kinds of things. Um, and I began missing so much school to do this, which was great for a while. But then um, the local newspaper wrote a story about what I was doing. And it kind of told the school that I'd been missing a lot of school to do this video gaming stuff. Were, were, were you a good student? I mean, were you in, like, trouble? Were you truanting? Or, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, your, your book is quite academic, so I, I don't <laughs> imagine... I mean, certainly it was, uh, it was someone with a reasonable degree in 
economics, I thought, wow, this is quite technical. <laughs> so you, I don't think you're a sort of school dropout type person, but I, how, how, were you in a position where you could like you could wing it a bit, or were you were you struggling with your grades and stuff? Um, I was doing well at the beginning, and I'm I was well behaved, but my trouble was the apathy, which is getting like the apathy of trying to met to memorize facts just drove me just drove me insane. Like try to try and stare at a book long enough to met to met to memorize a fact that I can write down this one time and then forget it doesn't make it still doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so I think the apathy grew and grew, and then this interest in online gaming grew and grew. And not playing games so much, but organizing these video gaming events and building these communities around video games and participating and helping these kind of communities grow. It just got bigger and bigger. And that, I found that far more engaging. I found that was something that I really enjoyed doing. I found that a much better test of my skills. I found that I was learning far more skills doing just one of these events because you have to negotiate with the venue and the vendors and all these kinds of things. What, um, what, sort, of age, what sort of age were you when this was going on? This is like 15, 16 when, when it began. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's quite, do you think you were unusually self-aware? Because, I mean, different people have different, like, uh, levels of um, what you might call self, self-awareness. It's not, but to have that sense, you were learning more. Like, a lot of people at that age are just doing things that appeal to them without, a sen- without any sense of reflection about the relative attractions of that compared to school. I don't know if I was more self-aware. I think I was definitely, I found this thing I truly loved doing. Um, and most people, even at, uni- at university and beyond, they don't, well, I don't know, but in my experience, a lot of people don't really find that thing they truly love doing. And I did. I think I was very lucky that I just loved building these communities. I just loved these connections. I just loved these events that we were working on. I just loved being part of a team that was doing these events. I loved negotiating these deals with um, the clients that we'd that we'd, be work- that we'd be working with. Um, I loved the process of organizing those events and suddenly having this incredible responsibility and just realizing I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I was in in and over my head in the most epic level I could imagine. Um, so I wouldn't say more self-aware, but I found it more exciting. Um, I think in reflection, I, I'm rationalizing it by saying um, I wanted those skills, but I think it's just more exciting uh, at the time. I just found it far more exciting than going to history class looking at a book, memorizing the dates and facts, and then writing those dates down at the right time. Um, and I think that's what I really enjoyed. And and I wish I could have helped more people back then to understand what I was doing and why I was spending so much time doing this video gaming stuff because there's so much va- so much value in that. Um, and it was such a incredible formative experience for me. Um, yeah, so I've, I don't think it's a, more, it's a self-awareness thing. I think it's just... Just finding that thing, that spark that just lights you up, the thing that you spend, that, that you wake up in the morning and you want to do the first thing and the, the last thing you're doing at night, it's the thing that just occupies your mind, I think. Yes, I mean, I, 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 I suppose the, um, the, 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 the takeaway take from that for anyone listening is that if you're lucky enough to find something you really love, then you're lucky because a lot of people, you know, they can get quite late in life or never find something that really, really appeals to them. And obviously... There's a there's a very good book which I'll put in the show notes called uh, uh, I think it's called so, Cal Newport so good they can't ignore you. I so, love that book. Which which says you have to be careful about following your passion because if it doesn't if it's not sustainable you know then then it can actually be be a bad idea. But um, nonetheless, uh, finding something you love and turning it into your 
turning it into your career. So you were doing this, just to give a bit of detail, you were doing this, you had your own website quite, did you build your own website or did you get someone to do that for you? What was, what was the story there? No, I didn't have, I can't remember, I think I had a, yeah, I had a friend um, who was doing the uh, tech stuff at the time, and I'm still friends with him actually. Um, yeah, I had a friend who was doing the technology stuff. I knew nothing about technology back then at all. I, I had literally no idea how the internet worked. I had no idea about how websites worked. I understood that how to put the content onto website. I understood a little bit of um, HTML as well. Um, but that was pretty much it. Um, and what tended to happen over time is that we began like trying to start a company, and then we had a big fight. We split up, and we didn't speak for years. Um, um, and we both started going in slightly different directions and I think the, the turning point for me was um, I got hired by a company called IEG UK to manage their on, their on, online community. IEG, the game, the game, the, the, not the gaming, the, the stock trading company, IEG? No, it was a video gaming uh, organisation. So it was an association of video gaming centres back in, this was in the time where the internet speeds in the UK were so slow, you'd go somewhere else to play games on the internet. Um, those businesses mostly died out now, um, but they were very busy at the time and kids would go there after school to play games and I'd been responsible for running those events and those leagues and building those communities and getting people interacting, engaging, participating, getting the people that are owning these centers and um, sharing information and um, expertise w with each other. Um, and I think that's a big turning point because it's the first time I was treated as an adult, I think, because... I suddenly realized that there, there were consequences to a lot of things I was doing. I had to be very careful about how I phrased things. I had to be very careful about how I suggested things. I also found out that... Can you give an example? I'm not quite... I mean, I, I think I know what you mean, but maybe for listeners, what, what, can you give an example of what sort of things you have to be careful about? Um, I think now we'd say how you frame an answer to, to a question. Because when someone asks you a question, there's so many different ways to frame that answer. So you can say... You know, something like you're getting the wrong end of um, of uh, of the stick here, which is just going to annoy the other person. No, like no matter if you're wrong, right, wrong, that that sentence, something like that, is just going to annoy someone else. Where you can also also be, uh, begin a sentence with "Great idea, I love the fact that you, that you suggested this. Um, we'll try to implement it if we can, but we'll see how." You know, there's different ways of phrasing an answer. So it's kind of it's kind of, di it's kind of diplomacy, really. So the, di the a way yeah. of. Uh, saying so, communication skills, I suppose, is what the gen generic area. You you realise it makes yeah. a difference. You don't want to blow people off just because just because you're a, a not like there's a cost to not taking care, right? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's going beyond that level. Like until then, I was just not being rude. You know, I wasn't swearing at them. I wasn't being rude. But if I was if I was having a bad day, I wouldn't really watch what I was saying at all. Um, and what I found out is that you can cause issues so quickly. And I think this still happens today. Many people building communities today. They accidentally do so much more damage than what they intend, or they they do they do the damage when they don't intend because the way that they respond to a question can be so um, provocative. Um, it can be so even if they don't intend it, and and every single interaction that you have with anyone in a community is an opportunity to deepen that level of understanding with them. It's to deepen and improve that relationship with that person, and if you think of every every interaction like that, you have better results than if you just think, oh God, I've got 10 questions I have to get through in the next 20 minutes. Because then you're just playing the nut, the um, nut, the um, numbers game. And that means you're gonna give the shortest possible uh, response that you can, it's gonna be direct, 
if someone asks you a question and the answer is no, you're just going to say no. But if you're trying to deepen the level of understanding, you might ask them why they want that. You might ask them, you might say, that's a great idea, we'd love to do it, but um, unfortunately at the moment we can't do this, this, this. Um, you try to make them feel good. So at every interaction, someone should feel better that they interacted with you. Um, and that's a skill, or that is a lesson that I learned back then really quickly. Um, and it was a very useful lesson to learn. Okay, and you, you mentioned something about you know falling out with the guy who you who started with you with your website and you know that forming partnerships, having business partners, and you were quite young to be facing facing those those issues. Which you know, in a way, I'd say for anyone listening that you know it's a good thing just listening to this. If you're if you're starting something, think hard about. You know, again, these days it's so easy. Just Google things to remember when you're negotiating a deal with someone, and the advice that a 50-year-old gives a 40-year-old will be very relevant if you're a 10-year-old, a 10-year-old talking to a 12-year-old. Like, what happens if I change my mind? You know, how much are we going to pay? How much are we going to pay each other ourselves? You know, you know, who, who do I still own it if I stop? You know, there are. So, I'm sure I can imagine the issues, but um, have you got any advice now for people who? realize they don't have all because it's, it's also another lesson it's very important to realize you don't need the skills yourself it's good to know be a generalist but finding people who have the skills you need is part of what every successful business does you know the head of the head of rolls-royce doesn't know how to make a jet engine presumably um and um but any general advice for people wanting to look for their their business partners and in fever b maybe we'll, in a moment we'll come back to fever b but sure. do, do, do you have any advice for people looking for the sort of things that they should want in their business partners? Yeah, sure. I think there's a lot of people that have more expertise here than me. Um, I would say, looking back, we were in such a rush to get the company going that we didn't really think about how we are allocating shares. So in in the beginning, there were three of us that intended to uh, start to start the business. So we each gave, gave ourselves 33% of the business. And that, that, that makes sense. We're like, okay, that sounds good. But we never thought about the repercussions if someone decided, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm, uh, I'm done. But they still own like 33% of the business, even if we're working as hard as we possibly can for the next 50 years, turning this into a massive business, then that person who does nothing still owns 33% of the business. And yes, there's a lot of stuff on, di on diluting shares and all that kind of stuff, but I think if I could have done it again, I, wouldn't, I would have said, you know what, let's not allocate all of the shares of, of the business yet. You don't have to do that when you start a business. You don't have to allocate all of the shares of the business. But what you can do is allocate more shares as it becomes more reflective of the work that people have put in. And you have a better understanding of how you work with somebody. I think working with someone is a lot like living with somebody, really. Um, when you live with somebody, you don't, you don't know what it's like to live with them until you actually do it. Because usually when you meet people, you're meeting people that want to be there, that have made the effort to go out, that are in a good mood, otherwise they wouldn't have been there in the first place. When you live with somebody, you have to see, see, see them when they're in a bad mood. See what happens when you're forced into difficult situations together. And it's like traveling with somebody as well. I mean, if I was going to start, start a business with somebody again, I would go on a big hike with them first, I think, you know, to really go through the situations and, and how, you deal with sit, how you deal with situations when you disagree. And in a, and in a partnership especially, I mean, if, if you disagree, that could be like the end of the company because... Where do you go from there? It's a 50-50 split of shares. Um, so I'd be very, very careful about doing that. Um, in terms of finding the right person, I think, again, this is my expertise, I think going back, I found the right person, but we didn't really spend enough 
time talking about how we deal with the situations that were going to come up. So what happens when you disagree? What happens when you fundamentally disagree? And it, sh and it, and it, sh and it, should, and it should have been any issue relating to the technology, this person is the person that we go with, any issue relating to my work, that, you know, we go with my say, and we give each other the opportunity to set each, each other straight, and if we fundamentally disagree, we take it to this person, and we present our point, and that person decides. Like, there should have been a process like that, but we were young and dumb and doing what people do when they start a business when they're like 17 or something. Yes, yes. Um, okay, and, and can you actually give a bit of... Um... So, so this thing is. So, did this go straight into Fever B, or did you did you go to college, no. to university, or what? Take us through the different stages, just in short form, in the stages <laughs> in your life. Sure. So, I was doing these video gaming events um, around the world, and then the local newspaper wrote a story on me, which meant that the school noticed that I'd been um, missing a lot of school, and they noticed that I wasn't as sick as all, all the sickness I'd been um, providing to them. Um, and so they set me up with a meeting with a career ad advisor at the school. And here was this guy, I mean, yeah, he, he, was, he was a guy doing what career advisor is supposed to do. He said, video gaming and the internet, there's no future here at all. You should, you should like go to, go to university and do a marketing degree. So I did um, a marketing events course at the University of uh, Gloucestershire, um, which is a lovely place to do a university. I mean, it's not the best university in the world, but it's a very nice place to live for a few years. Um, and as part of that course, I had um, a year out in the industry, and one of, one of my clients there wanted an online community. Um, and so I got roped into doing that and doing the social media work as well. And then when I finished, I just kept doing that. Um, so I finished university, and I got an internship with um, Seth Godin in New York, who some oh. of your audience might know. I don't know. Well, yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure many of them do. But if you don't, I'll certainly post a link. He's given some brilliant – he's one of the absolutely classic um, Tedster and – one of these people who says things that you feel you know in a yeah. way that no, rather like Malcolm Gladwell, he communicates the obvious <laughs> in a way that no one else is capable of. I mean, a huge fan of his. He's got a very interesting online MBA as well. But So what, what year were you doing your internship with him? Uh, I think that was 2007, maybe 2008, around that sort, sort of time, I think. Um, and that was interesting. I was working on Tribes and on Squidoo as well. Um, and just being around him, seeing how it works, really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And then after that... What was some, um, well, would you, I mean, I think everyone listening would love to know a bit more about that. I, I didn't realise this at all. So what, what are the things that impressed you the most, if there's one or two things from being... Because being, being close to like a, globally, a global brand, individual, mega brand, <laughs> superstar, rock star, Tedster, must be quite... What were the things you remember that, that most stick in your mind? Sure, so I'm going to say this, but I have to respect the... His pride, of, his of course, of course. Well. Don't 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 say, don't say anything that he'd be unhappy listening to. I will send yeah. it. I will send it a link because he knows he might retweet it, and the, <laughs> then I get an extra thousand listeners. <laughs> um, I think what I found most impressive with Seth is that he's pretty much the same person online as he is. Um, um, uh, he's pretty much the same person offline as he is uh, online, mm -hmm. and I was only with him for three months, and there are people that know him way better than what um, I have ever got to know him. Um, but I think what amazed me is that. Beyond all of the marketing stuff, beyond um, the the reputation that he has, and um, was that the way that he works is so? I found it very intense. So he would, so I was in his office in um, Hastings on Hudson, and it was me, him. There's a big desk like there as well, and his um, book publicist, I think, in a separate room. Um, 
And he would come down and he would sit there and he would work. I mean, he wasn't one to be distracted. He would work. I mean, he wouldn't be checking Facebook or anything. He's, he, he would go there and he'd do what Cal Newport would call deep work, you know. He'd really get into it um, almost, to a state, almost to an extent where I'm worried to distract him at times. Um, and the other really interesting part about that is when you work with someone that you admire as much as what I did, you become so keen to impress them. And I wish I could have had that opportunity now because back then I don't think I was quite ready for it because I was so worried that of what he thought of me that I was worried about asking a question that might reflect badly on what I knew or things I was supposed to understand. And I was very intimidated by him in a way. Um, and I really loved his work. I really appreciate the experience to work with him. Um, and I would say if you ever get an opportunity like that, just go for it. Just really go for it um, because that is one of the – Regrets of the uh, regrets that I have that I didn't uh, pester well, him with questions all the time and try and just learn as much as I could from it because I felt very shy at times. I'm around him because I'm so in awe. Well, uh, I mean, no, no, no regrets is a good one of my sort of is, uh, one of my more recent sort of insights is um, I can't remember who I was. I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk actually saying that mm-hmm. one of the things he's terrified of is um, the or advises listeners to worry about is to not get to the end of their life with regrets and sort of if there's anything you're thinking of doing, doing it, do it because if you visit an old people's home and you talk to people who have regrets, it's just so incredibly sad. And so maybe you should tweet, tweet to him and ask if you could do a review, of, a review of his, uh, his, I mean, maybe there's something, you, if you think you can, you know, it might, it might be like, you know, me trying to offering Gary Vaynerchuk business advice. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually think. I mean, what I would say to anyone listening to this is that, uh, the fear of something going wrong is usually far higher than what it should be in your head. You know, right. when you actually get to the bottom of that fear, there's nothing there. I mean, say he's working hard and I distract him with a question that reveals that I don't know something that he thought I knew. All he's going to do is, like, tell me what the answer is. I mean, he's not going to be rude. He's, he's, he's a nice guy and he's going to help me out because I'm there to learn. Um, but in my head, this fear, this tiny fear became this, blew up into this big, massive thing. And there's no reason why that should be the case in my head. Um, and again, the experience was really good. This is just one thing that I remember as a useful piece of advice. Um, so I would say, like, always the fear of something going wrong is far higher than than what it should be. And once you get into it, once you really explore that fear, there's not really much behind it. Um, I, I certainly agree yeah. with that. I mean, in, in, in um, workshops I do on entrepreneurship, I encourage people to embrace rejection as a concept because when I was a, a student, I hated, I, I, told people, I told people about my ideas, but I wanted, what I wanted was for them to tell me the ideas were great, whether or not they were. I, 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 I wasn't aware of the fact that's what I wanted. But in fact, you tell people you know, being rejected is v- valuable in so many ways. It tells you there's something wrong with the way you're presenting it, there's something wrong with, or, may, or maybe there's a perfect reason they just don't have time, but then they'll just tell you they don't have time. Yeah. The, the worst that can happen is people can say no. They might be mean to you, but then you can think to yourself, well, at least I'm not mean like that guy or, or woman. So um, so that's that's very interesting. So, okay, so you got the internship with uh, Seth Godin, and then did the, the, is that when you decided to launch the business, or, or what was there any... Yeah, so I began the Feverby blog um, a couple of months before that, um, because I was really interested in building communities, I was sharing tips that I'd learned from building communities, and it wasn't, didn't have that many people that were reading at the time, but maybe a few hundred people, I think, were re- were um, reading that, that blog. And then um, after the internship, me and a few others who did a virtual internship as well, and I was I came after a, a, 
another group had just gone through a internship with him. Um, so there's an ebook that Seth published on his blog, and then I got a couple of uh, great clients that I really enjoyed working with. Um, and yeah, then I moved from New York to Lithuania with my girl, with my with my girlfriend at the time, who's now who's now my uh, wife. Um, and yeah, I was doing the work from Lithuania, and then. Uh, I got a job working for the United Nations Refugee Agency in Geneva, um, doing their online community work, doing their social, me- social me- media work as well. Um, so I was moving around a lot of that time. Like it's very, it's a very unsettled time, but also quite exciting. Um, yeah, it's, I really enjoyed that time in my life because there was this incredible sense of possibility around where all these things were going. Were going. Where's Where's the technology going? Where's the social side of this going? Um, and it's still there, you know. I think it's still there. Where this is all going, and the opportunities and the possibilities of it. Like, and I, no. I really enjoyed that. No, uh, completely. So, so because uh, we've only got about another fifteen minutes now. Because I, sure. I, 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 so just very, very quickly. So, so you had that. I had no idea you had a Central European Baltic connection because um, that we we don't know each other. But um, you were quite close to close to Poland. I've got Lithuanian friends. I, I my my brother used to live in Vilno, Vilnius. I should be careful to say Vilnius if there are Lithu- Lithuanians listening. Um, anyone that some people listening will understand that reference, even if others don't. Um, so. Uh, so did you then take the plunge and start your business? Because in fact, you, the thing is, you, it wasn't, you had this kind of direct work for clients from much earlier in your life than some people. So it wasn't like a plunge of quitting full-time employment. You were presumably working as a sort of contractor for these different organizations, not not on a salary, were you? You know what it is? Um, I think I might be jump, jump, jumping ahead of this question here. For me, the blog was everything. Like the blog was absolutely everything essential to my business. When I see people, a lot of people in my space, they work for a big company, uh, Autodesk or somewhere. Then they try to become a in a um, in, independent person, and they try to set up their own business as well. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And usually, when it doesn't, it's because they don't have a, an audience. You know, they might mm. have this one or two relationships that they can use to get started, and they think that everyone else is going to naturally come to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's, it was all about the blog. I mean, when you have say even just one thousand people that are reading your blog a day if one percent of them want to hire you at any one time that's more work than you can that you can deal with so you mm-hmm. have to hire more uh, more individuals but now once we got you know five thousand and ten thousand people that read the blog um there's everything and having that platform was everything and it's so i can't imagine i don't know how people build a business today without having a platform to begin with without having an audience that reads them without having an audience that follows what they do without having an audience that trust them because for me, I think this is what Seth says as well a lot. It's always that drip, 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 you know? Um, yeah. When you've been showing up for years, like Seth has, you know, like four, 14 years, I think now, he's been dripping that blog post after blog post after yeah. blog post. So you know him, you trust him, you're going to buy his book, you're going to attend to his, his events. If he did consultancy, you would hire him if you could. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't. Um, and so for me, is a smaller version of that. It was always that drip, 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 and it was getting three more re- readers a day, which you can do. You can reach out to three to three three people a day and invite them to read your blog. But now it might be Instagram or something else. Um, but having that patience to do that is what I found was the key to the business. Um, and it helps when you get mentioned in this publication or that publication. Sure. But you need some central place to begin with, and that's been the critical thing for me. Um, just having that. Thing. And the more that the blog go, grows, the more clients we get, the more um, 
the more work we can do. And, and then you can start investing in things that are going to grow the blog even faster or going, or going to do things even better. And that was always the, the key thing for me. That's the one metric that I tracked almost all the time. Um, it was the readership of the blog, the impact of the blog, the mm. relevancy of that blog to the work that I do. Okay, um, yeah. So that was that, that was the key. Um, yeah. I don't know how people create a business without it to be honest. Um, no no I mean Venichuk talks about jab 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 right hook of like the jabs being little little gifts mm-hmm. and and he also talks about the importance of attention that he says it's the currency of our age because and you know if you you've got the best product in the world if no one's paying attention you've got a problem um, and so that all makes that all makes perfect sense and in terms of educating yourself obviously you had a mixture of your own personal experience and um, no doubt self tuition if someone listening to this wants to get well up in well up in uh, online community management apart from um, buying your book which is good value for money and your <laughs> and, and, and signing up signing up resubscribing to your blog which we'll post a link to and uh, obviously if they've got money signing up for your training courses um, what what um, what else can people do to learn the craft of being a good online community manager I mean the obvious answer here is to start doing it Yep. Start a community for a topic that you're passionate about, and what you'll usually find is that no one will will, will join. Like some of your friends will, um, but that will usually be it. And there'll be some exceptions here. I mean, that's just the rule of large num large numbers here. At some point, you'll have some uh, um, allies here that will take off. But then start deconstructing why people don't join your community, and what you'll usually find is that they don't join because they don't know you, they don't trust you, they aren't even aware that the, the community exists. Or they are aware, but they're in rival communities. So then you have to think, all right, so I need to create a unique community, a really powerful concept that doesn't exist yet. So to use an example, um, there's a community called Backpacking Light. It is one of my favorite online communities in the world because there's so many communities out there today in the travel sector, so many. So it would be really hard to start a new community, even within the backpacking space. There's so many communities in that sector. So to start a new online community in the travel space today would be really difficult. Well, what these people did, they started the community for one specific goal, which is to have the lightest possible backpack. And that's really interesting because you're, if you're a backpacker, then the thing that you most want is a lighter backpack, usually. Um, so understanding that that concept is going to hook people, that when they hear about the concept for the first time, they're going to be attracted to it. They're going to tell 10 friends. Um, and this was the other thing that I learned from, from uh, Steph, figuring out how to make ideas spread, how... To the idea that if you tell someone and they don't tell other people straight away, then you need to refine that what that concept is because it's clearly not powerful enough at the moment. So you can create a community with a unique concept and then it will draw people to it. You invite your first friends to join, they'll invite more people to join, and it'll gradually take off by then. Then you have to deal with the issues of how it scales. Um, so just by trying to do it yourself and then diagnosing why it's not working is such a powerful lesson to have. And I guess it's the same with sales, it's the same with doing PR, it's the same with anything. Just start doing it for yourself first, understand why it's not working, and then grow from that. Um, I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a vibrant space. There are good jobs in this space. There's great opportunities in this space. Um, so it'd be interesting to see more people really try to figure out what makes some communities work. And the other thing I would say is, when you participate in a community, try to really think why you do it. I mean, at a psychological level, what gets you to participate? Literally, you can write this down. What gets you personally to participate in that community? Why do you check the community? Is it a habit for you that you do every single day? Or is there something else going on here? Is it a 
a uh, status appeal that you're trying to build your, your reputation among that group? Is it a case where, where your friends are there or is it a case where you're afraid of missing out? Really try to pinpoint that motivation because that gives you such a great understanding of what kind of appeals and messaging and communications you use when you try to build and grow your own online community. Great, that's very, very useful. So learning by doing and uh, thinking about your own motivations and uh, thinking, and, and I think quite often when people are starting things, they think, if only I had money. I used to think, if only I had money, I could, I could buy more traffic. And I, presumably you wouldn't agree with that, that you know, it's actually just driving traffic to your site, unless you're very, is brilliant, isn't the thing to do. You need to appeal to people. Because if you can't get people who are going to sign up because it's valuable, with that, I don't know, what do you think about that? Money is useful once you've proved the concept of that community. So yeah. once you know that a community works, once you've been testing it and you're refining it, that's why you do a small launch in the beginning. Even big companies need to learn this. You do a small launch in the beginning to see if that concept works, see if it takes off, you refine it, you test it, you test it, you test it, and you get multiple attempts to get this right. Once you're getting it right, once it's growing, then maybe you want to start investing more in the technology behind the community or investing more in promoting the community or maybe having a PR person or whatever it is. But... Get the concept right first, because if you don't have that, you have nothing to build upon. Um, so I'd be very laser-focused in getting that right. And too often, it sounds so obvious, but we skip over the step. So a company will build a community about themselves, and they realize that they're not Britney Spears or Beyonce. People don't want to spend their spare time talking about them. They want to spend their spare time talking about the issues that matter to them, talking about things that affect their identity. Um, and these are the kind of things that companies have to orientate their communities to be about. Okay, now I'm going to ask a sort of kind of question that's relevant to me. I think it may be relevant sure. to some of our listeners that if you've got someone who's managing communities not as a profession, they're not, a, they don't, have, they've got, a, they've got their day job and like they've got a hobby. It could be the fishing club, the soccer club, their, their Ted and TEDx fans in Poland group, like I've got, there are a couple of thousand members, or my, my Wojtek, the Soldier Bear group worldwide. And I, I, I say I've got an hour. The, the way I do it, for example, is I have a Google alert. So if news stories, occur anywhere in the world on Wojtek the Soldier Bear. I just copy them, paste, copy paste them if someone posts. I, I give them a thumbs up, but I don't... I, is there, if, so, if someone has a budget of X hours a week, say one or two hours a week, not enough as a job, what should they spend that one or two hours a week doing to grow and develop their community? What are the most important things? Yeah, we call this the, ince the inception stage of the life cycle of a community, which is in this stage, you just need to get activity going and growing and participating. So I would spend the time looking for discussions that are going to be interesting to create. So what do people want to talk about? If you interview one or two members a week, you'll get a huge list of discussions that um, you can initiate. Um, the second would be replying to discussions that do exist. A lot of platforms right now have the app mention fe feature as well. So you can tag in other people to participate in that discussion. So, hey, Mark, I think this, but I'd love to hear what this person, this person, this person thinks. And then mm. they get tagged in, they're more likely to participate as well. Um, the, other one, the other one would be uh, directly inviting people to join and participate. In the early stages of community, the people most likely to join and participate are people that know you, that personally know you. No matter how much you promote the community, it's the strength of your own relationships that are going to be the critical thing in the beginning. So I make time. I make sure that you're investing time in those relationships and inviting people that you know well to to participate, and invite them to participate in specific discussions. Don't just ask them to join a community. Invite them to do something very specific within that community, and that will be far more successful. We've tried this many times. It's always far far more successful not to 
have people to join a community because no one right now is looking for a community to join. They're looking to solve the issues they have. They're looking to answer their questions they have. They're looking to reduce the fears that they have in their lives. So initiate discussions around that and invite people to participate in them. And just keep doing that until it grows. You'll, eventually you'll hit the critical mass point. It'll start taking off. It'll start growing by, by itself. And then you, can fi- then you can figure out what to do from that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in this case, these are things that already exist. It's more... I, 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 you know, I, I guess it may be more a question of mission and purpose. That you know, these things have a couple of thousand members. I don't know what, what, but there, I've got a sense that for most people, it's a nice, it's nice to have things. There's a few, there's a hardcore of like ten or twenty people who are active in the forum, and basically everyone else is silent. And I'm sure that's very common that you are always going to have like the the activists. But uh, there are already some ideas there. But I, I, th- I think that um, you know, into, if I have the time, you know, having a, a ten questions to type question even linking to a google form for different members because there are some people whose motivation is to be more visible and you know be more the center of attention and those people are quite easy sometimes the people who who want to be the center of attention aren't necessarily the same people you'd like to have attention drawn to (laughs) so there's just like an issue that can you talk about your your business and your your future at what scale is what scale is fever be at the moment and what's your business model you're selling you're selling consultancy and you're selling training courses i think when i was last on your website but what's your business model and what's your future and how, how, to the extent it's not deeply confidential how big is your business in terms of I don't know, revenue people pro- profits uh, are you a multi-billionaire <laughs> <laughs> I wish um, or, may, may, or maybe not I don't know um, so right now our goal is purely to try and uncover every single tip and piece of advice that's going to help people build communities I mean that's usually the psychology the data and things like that um, so we work with organizations usually for a couple of months. We don't like to be someone that, you know, where we build ourselves into their processes for for uh, for, uh, for the long term, because I think that's a dishonest way of working. And um, we like to work with organizations for a couple of months and optimize every single part of their community, the way they invite people to join, um, the training that we can give them, try and make sure their platform is optimized for that community as well. Try and look at every single communications going out, look at the processes, um, make sure that questions are getting answered even quicker, taking their existing resources, and just basically optimizing it as much as possible because I think that's the biggest possible impact. Um, we do training as well. We have um, training courses on the strategy side where most people will make huge mistakes on the strategy and it's really hurting a lot of communities. And we teach people how to build communities as well. If you go to ondemand.feverb.com, um, there are lots of uh, courses there. Um, and we do other things as well. We do um, the, technolo- the technology side as well. We help companies... Um, pick the right platform because there's so many options out there. We help them um, implement that platform because just picking the platform isn't good enough because that's just going to give you with an empty shell. You also need to design it. You also need to figure out how to customize it and make sure that it's really good. And you can make huge mistakes here just by relying on a implementation partner that you hire to do that for you. So we like to reduce that fear by taking that out of their hands. So saying we can guide you through this. We've done it with other online communities that we can point to that you can see today that exist that are very active today. Um, and so they keep growing from, from that. Um, and then we also do, um, I do a lot of talks um, at events around the world, um, Australia, USA, Europe, um, lots of those kinds of events. Um, but I think for us, it's, I think the, the, the thing I discovered over the last couple of years, and this has probably changed my mindset about running a business, is that I always wanted in the past my business to be as big as possible. Because whenever you tell someone that you have your own business, the question they always ask you is, how big is it? By how big is it, they mean, how many employees do you have? 
They don't ask you how happy you are. They don't ask you if you're happy with the work-life balance. They don't ask you if you're tackling the kind of issues that you want to tackle. They always ask you, how big is that business? And it's great to say, oh, I hired 10 people. I hired 20 people. And that sounds really great until you have to pay, until you have to pay, to, uh, pay, to, uh, pay them. <laughs> so I'm far more interested today, not in having the biggest, the biggest business I could possibly have, but in doing work that I really believe in, work that I'm proud of. I don't want to spend my life building a company that, consumes my life where I have to spend my time doing work that I don't enjoy, which I think I'd have to do if the business was huge. Um, so we're good. We're, I think, high six or seven figures today. I think we are um, um, eight people. We have some contractors there, there as well. Um, so we're good. Um, we're in good shape. We're growing at a steady amount uh, each year. Um, but I think there's so many things you learn from running a business that are so important to learn. And even if someone told me before I start, before I began the business that you should do this, this, and this, I probably would have ignored ignored them at the time and made all made all those mistakes along the way, just because you have to learn it from your mistakes at times. So I think that's a, I think that's a good way to learn. I think you just, yeah. Well, the final thing I would say, if we're short on time, is running a business is the most exciting thing possible. I mean, it's it will get it's what gets you out of bed every morning. It's what you enjoy. It's, you know, you get to spend time doing what you want to do. Um, you know, two years ago, my wife and I we spent a year traveling around the world whilst I was running the business as well. Um, it gives you the freedom and the opportunities and the challenges every single day. So you'll never be bored. You'll never be sitting at your desk bored. Just, there's always stuff going on, good or bad. It's always stuff going on. And you learn so much. And I can't imagine doing anything else, really. That's fantastic. We, we, we are out of time. Just, just, will you be doing this in five or ten years' time? I mean, if someone like Gary Vaynerchuk offered you, uh, made you an offer you couldn't refuse, would you consider selling the business and uh, like, uh, if you can make you wealthy for the rest of your life? Because I can easily imagine being... And, and I had one more question. Like, if someone's interested in engaging you, I, listening to what I'm hearing, I wouldn't imagine you want tiny clients. What sort of budget does someone need to have to make it worth you engaging them? Because there has to be a lower threshold because otherwise you're not going to achieve your objective of staying small, right? You're going to take, is, what, what sort of clients are you looking for and would be a minimum engagement fee on a yearly basis for, for it to be actually sensible for someone to get in touch with you? I'm now making an advert. It's an important question, I think. but I, I don't. I, I don't want you to be bombarded with with like lots of questions saying, "Come and do, come and do something for five hundred quid," and you say no. No, I mean, I, I don't want this to be a bitch. Um, so the level we tend to work at varies depending upon how much support somebody needs. If it's training, if it's consultancy, if it's a technology as well. But for a very small engagement, probably around um, twenty thousand US to us. Um, a larger engagement, I mean, at the high level, be up to 200,000, I think, at that kind of level. But it varies so much by the length of the engagement. If we're training people, the number of people that we have to train, big, small community teams, tech, and technology can be such a margin. Sure. The margin of, of error on that would be huge. So 20, 20 to $200,000 is a range. But I, 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 and it also, and, and this also tells a message to some of my listeners that it's really worth being an expert in something because you can, you know, if you're delivering value, you can charge. And the value to be delivered here is enormous. Um, one final question, because we are basically out of time. Is there, anything you, is there anything that you haven't said that you think is important to someone who, you've already said that it can be the best life. Um, is there anything else you think people ought to know about you or, or advice you'd give to a younger person thinking of starting a business or a lesson you learned? Don't do it alone, I think. Um, I mean, you can start a business just by yourself. That's fine. I know some people disagree, but... But don't do it alone because you're going to face issues that feel like 
the first time anyone has ever encountered that issue, but everyone goes through it. And if I could go back in time five or ten or, or to ten years, it would be to build a group of peers, people that you're not, that aren't your team that you're managing, that aren't the clients that you work with, but build a group of people that you, you consider your peers and connect with them, talk to them very often, build a sense of relationship with them, exchange advice with them. Because this will help you so much. Even really small, small things like finding a trusted vendor to build your website. Um, the referrals are so useful and the advice is so useful and the emotional support is so useful. And there are so many times where I've been so down. And they're highs as well. They're huge highs. Um, but the hardest parts of when you're down, when let's imagine you just, you just lost a big client. You're not sure if you're going to pay the bills for, you know, in three, in three, in three months time where you know what the challenges are and you don't need help on the challenges, but you just need that emotional support. You just need someone that's going to ramp you up and get you believing that you can do it. Um, so that's, that's probably the end of it. I mean, the audio advice you can read in other books, I'm sure, but don't do it alone. Make sure you have peers that you can reach out to. Perfect. Well, I just find it, well, I, I just end uh, for our listeners saying thank you very much, Richard. It was a really, really interesting conversation. I, again, can't recommend the blog and the book highly, <laughs> you, high, highly enough if you've got $20,000 plus. <laughs> you know where to spend it and apart from that if you and your wife or by yourself you're ever going to be in in poland or um i do also events in london and other parts of the world and you and you you, you sometimes speak <laughs> for free <laughs> then then we're interested we don't i don't run events where we have a budget tedx is not allowed to pay but but if you if you're ever coming to poland or to krakow i'd be more than happy to organize an event around your around, around, around your visit it's a beautiful city okay Thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate your time enormously. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about you know um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But but the, the you know the artists and the designers, the creators they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need so if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your 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 creative juices will run then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself and I think you can make history in Poland I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now not just from a you know going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.